questions today for those who will be listening later come from Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 through chapter 6, verse 10, and Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. Babies. Babies are amazing, aren't they? With those chubby little cheeks and that smile that just warms your heart, it's no wonder we love babies. But then there's the other side, by which I mean the backside. The stench and sheer volume of what goes on in a baby's diaper is simply awful. I mean, whoo! And then that scream. When they scream, it's so piercing, it makes you want to scream yourself. How can both be true about babies? They are so cute and wonderful, yet can be such a headache. The two seem incongruous. People say the same thing about God. How can God be both a wrathful judge of mankind, yet also loving and merciful? This seems incongruous, too. The truth, however, is that what appears to be polar opposites of God's nature are actually all part of the same consistent nature. We see this clearly in our Old Testament reading today from Joel chapter 2. God's nature is revealed in this short passage as both one of judgment and one of mercy. At the same time, it serves as a warning to mankind of judgment to come, but gives specific instructions of what we should do to avoid judgment. Let's take a closer look. The book of Joel is mysterious in that nothing is known about the author or even the timing of this prophecy. Some scholars believe that it was an early prophetic writing because it mentions enemies of Israel, such as the Philistines, Egyptians, and Edomites. Others date it after the return from exile because it never mentions the northern kingdom nor a king. Either way, the prophecy serves as a stern warning about God's coming judgment. But it isn't a message of hopelessness. It actually gives the reader instructions on how to avoid judgment and in that way gives hope. I raise this question in my introduction. How can Yahweh be both an angry judge of mankind and a loving, merciful God? The answer is that he is holy. Because he is holy, sin is repugnant and must be judged and destroyed. And because some people have given themselves over entirely to sin in complete rebellion against God, they must be judged. Sin is like a disease that spreads. We see this illustrated clearly throughout the Old Testament. That is why the penalty for sin is often removal from the rest of the people, either in the form of being sent out or through execution. If the sinner were to remain among everyone else, the person's evil behavior might spread. Thus, the harshness of the judgment is really protection for everyone else. God's holiness and love are connected and require judgment of sin. 
I'm confident there are entire books written on these theological topics, but I think you get the gist of it, so we can move on. Since Joel's prophecy dates back to well over 2,000 years ago, why should we care anymore about the warning he gave? Surely that's all behind us now. Well, yes and no. You've probably heard the saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it echoes. The same is true of Scripture. The sin and pending judgment that Joel saw in his day is still present today, though the specifics are different. This passage is set apart by a repeated refrain, blow the trumpet in Zion. The trumpet was an instrument of war. It was used to signal danger. A trumpet blast was an immediate call to action. Drop what you are doing and get ready now. Whatever the trumpeter sees takes precedence over all other activities. Joel, in this sense, is acting as a trumpeter for the people of Israel. God's holy judgment is coming. Joel warns that the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. He describes God's judgment very graphically, like an unimaginably large swarm of locusts that blot out the sun and moon when they fly, cause earthquakes when they march, and result in utter desolation everywhere they go. Nothing escapes them. Does this remind you of anything? Perhaps the group punishment we talked about recently of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were destroyed by brimstone from the sky. But whether it's brimstone or locusts, the devastation is just as complete. Locusts don't kill people directly. They just eat up all the crops so every person and every animal die of starvation. You may be wondering, what is the day of the Lord? It's actually a phrase that is used about 18 times in the Old Testament by various authors. Every time but one, it refers to terrible judgment. The exception is Isaiah 58:13, where it refers to the Sabbath. It is a fluke of English that the key words describing the day of the Lord, all from every passage, all start with the letter D. Doom, desolation, destruction, and darkness. Obadiah says that on the day of the Lord, your deeds shall return on your head. That's sort of the negative of the golden rule. The day of the Lord is always described as being very near. It's not some far-off event. How is that possible when there are nine Old Testament prophets warning of the day of the Lord who prophesied over the course of hundreds of years? How can the day of the Lord be at hand for all of them? The simplest answer is because every day is the day of the Lord. Let me explain. When we think of the day of the Lord, we tend to think of the end times judgment of mankind. That's why you would expect to see this phrase in the book of Revelation, but it's not there. However, we are right about the eschatological implications of the day of the Lord, 
After all, in Acts chapter 2, we find a quote from Joel directly applying his ancient prophecy to the church in that day. So the day of the Lord is apparently timeless. We especially see that with 1 Corinthians 5, 5, where Paul instructs the church in Corinth, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So let me ask you, when will a person's spirit be ultimately saved? On the day of judgment. The day of judgment is when everyone's eternal fate is decided. So you might be thinking, but that's probably a long way off, Pastor John. How can every day be judgment day? The answer lies in the fact that the day we die is, for all intents and purposes, our judgment day. Even though our death and our judgment may happen to be at very different times, it is too late after we die to change our eternal address. Add to that that none of us know the day that we will die. Any day could be our last. Or another way to look at it is that every day someone dies. Every day someone is ending their life on earth and therefore their eternal fate is sealed. In these ways, every day is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is timeless, past present, and future. You can't get any more at hand than that. What are we to do? Does Joel give us any hope? Absolutely. He tells us first about the nature of the God we serve. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and repents of evil. That right there should give us hope. Joel also tells us, what we should do. Speaking on behalf of Yahweh, he says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Tear your hearts in anguish over your sins. In case you missed it, this isn't a call merely for individual sinners to repent and return to God. This is a communal act of repentance, similar to what happened in Nineveh after Jonah preached there. Verses 15 and 16 make the communal aspect explicit. Sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Gather everyone to fast Repent and worship. Do it in community. That's why we are gathered here tonight. This is what Ash Wednesday is all about. This is our solemn assembly. We must rend our hearts before God. We are all aware of our individual sins, but Joel is warning of communal judgment the repentance of certain individuals seems insufficient to stave off communal judgment. We all need to repent of our common sins. 
Compared with our personal sins, we are probably less aware of how our society and our very way of life may be harming others. We are often blind to the effects of our laws and economic system because we grew up with it. It's all we know. But just as Israel in Joel's day was guilty of communal ways of life that were worthy of judgment, so too is the U.S. today. And just as there is no sinless individual, there is no innocent city, state, or nation. Here at the beginning of Lent, we pause to recognize our own fallenness. We lament how we have fallen short time and time again. We also mourn how sin has harmed creation and other people, even if we personally had nothing to do with that harm. As Christ followers, we need this. We need to spend time in lament and mourning. Like Job, today is a day for sitting in ashes. But even as we are allowing remorse and lament to wash over us, it is leading us somewhere. We know how Lent ends. Lent ends with Easter. So we don't remain permanently in ashes. Hope comes after. And not just any hope, but hope of the kingdom. That's why we receive not a random smudge of ashes on our foreheads, but the shape of a cross. So even though we have suffered and we continue to suffer both the pull towards sin and its devastating effects, we do so in the hope of the kingdom because we know that's where the story ends. And not just that, but we are being daily transformed in the image of Jesus so that our hope is for today as well. As Christ's followers, our lament never becomes despair. In the mystery of God's revelation through his word, Joel's ancient words are as meaningful today as the day that he wrote them. Blow the trumpet, for the day of the Lord is terrible. Return to the Lord. And if we heed his warning, he offers hope that instead of judgment, God may leave a blessing. We understand that the day of the Lord is timeless, and so is the mercy that our Lord offers for all who accept it. And that mercy doesn't leave us the same. So even our lament pushes us back into the loving arms of Jesus. The ashes we receive on our foreheads tonight remind us that we are a community of sinners who mourn our fallenness, yet do so in the kingdom hope that will not disappoint. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.